Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I've got some housekeeping to do off the bat. I've been appreciative of everybody's feedback to me and giving me suggestions, recommendations, etc. on on you know things to talk about on the podcast. And I'm I'm taking that all in during hunting season this year. I'll take uh, you know all your inputs and ideas and suggestions and and uh, come up with kind of a game plan, kind of for next year. I, I develop like some of the discussion points. Sometimes they're ad hoc. Sometimes they're just ideas that I come up with. Sometimes they're you know other folks that participate on this uh, on this podcast. And uh, we, we kind of just go from there. I also wanted to get back, and I'll, I'll do this next week. I got to find his name. I picked it out of a, a hat the other day. The individual is actually going to get a hat, and I will find that while we're on the podcast. And I really appreciate, like I said, all the feedback from everybody. I got cameras out today. I put out about 10 cameras today, and I'm starting to you know, diagnose what's going on in my property. I made a decision this year, and I think this is different in the past. I'm usually pretty obsessed with data. I think a lot of people want to hear, you know, oh, well, you know, what do you got going on in your property or, you know, what are the deer doing on your property? I actually shied away from that this year. I wanted to concentrate on a few other things in my life and not focus so much on deer all the time. I'm in the field all the time. I'm working with clients. I mean, all I do is talk and see and think about deer. So I took a step away from the cameras and and I just put out some cameras tonight. So I'm kind of excited. It's funny. I was deploying two of the cameras and I had does just kind of walking around me. Now that's not a you know not normal, but in this case these does had fawns around them. And again, you know the presence or my presence in that particular situation, not pushing these deer off the landscape shows how comfortable they are. Shows that there's low predation rates. Show that they're not really opposed to me being in those areas. The other thing is I always had my equipment running the entire time. Typically when I'm deploying cameras, I always have my equipment running. And, um, you know, that's just a pet peeve of mine. It works. It creates kind of this, I guess, energy or feeling for me where I'm not disturbing the deer too much. So, uh, you know, that's kind of uh, my strategy and, and just throwing that out there. I, I can't find the gentleman's name, but I believe he was from Nebraska. And I will find it during this podcast and I will I will announce it at the end so he can send me an email. And I appreciate his feedback from, uh, from telling me, uh, you know, things that he wants to hear more about. So thanks, everybody, for doing that. Keep uh, rating the podcast and I appreciate everybody's, uh, you know, valuing this this particular, uh, you know, uh, discussion that we have. All right, I got a new guest on. Hey, Colin, are you on the line? I am. All right, man. Uh, you and I have had a lot of conversations over the past several weeks, and I'm excited to have you on. I want you to introduce yourself, talk about where you are, talk a little bit about your business, and um, you know, kind of the services that you offer. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, th- first of all, thanks a lot for uh, having me come on here. I love uh, coming on different podcasts, and you know, like you said, we've we've talked a lot, and uh, it's been nice to share different ideas and strategies and all that stuff with you know like-minded guys such as yourself. So I enjoy that. Yeah. So I uh, grew up on a small small farm in uh, Dryden, Michigan. Uh, which is kind of at the base of the thumb of Michigan for guys who are not familiar with the state. And uh, so, yeah, I grew up on a small 15-acre farm, started to getting into, uh, you know, QDMA and food plots and all that stuff at a young age. And uh, then one thing kind of led to another, got into uh, QDMA more heavily, went through their both of their uh, deer steward courses, ended up meeting a lot of really great guys, uh, a couple of guys you've had in the podcast, and Jake Ellinger, Jim Ward, um, Jim Brocker. So a lot of different guys that I've worked with, you know, throughout the industry and as well as a, a lot of different people from different backgrounds and foresters and stuff like that. So I've really tried to, to uh, focus in on, you know, kind of the hands-on type of learning and, and then the observation, you know, data type of learning. And uh, so I'm excited to, you know, kind of break some of that down. I know me and you have talked a lot about that. You know, of, of obviously there's a lot you can learn online. There's a lot you can learn videos and, and all that stuff. But when you really start applying this stuff to properties, you really start learning, at least for me, through observational data. And, and every situation, every property is different. So learn to kind of adapt those different strategies to every property is, is uh, it's challenging, but it's also really rewarding and fun. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a little background about, about myself. And uh, I think that covers everything. <laughs> so your business, Legendary Habitat, you are out of Michigan, but you, you work all over the place. Yeah, so it's a whitetail land management and consulting company. So I basically worked throughout Michigan and then bordering states. I was in Kentucky, Ohio, Iowa this year, up in the UP. I mean, I've been been to several different states. So, um, so yeah, I love uh, I love exploring new areas. I try not to go too far out of what I'm really familiar with and comfortable with. Um, you know, as far as trees, vegetation types, terrain and all that stuff. Uh, although a lot of those same, you know, terrain features and soil and a lot of the same principles, you know, I think apply. Um, but obviously, as you know, traveling around, you know, your vegetation type changes, your climate changes, you know, all these different things, you know, change from property to property, but or state to state, but, but, uh, yeah, you just have to learn to, uh, learn new things and, and adapt to, every client's needs. So. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit on a question. that's unrelated topics that we didn't pre talk about uh, before the sure. show. You set up a lot of blinds. You set up a 360 blinds. Is that pretty much your favorite box blind that you, you set up on a property? It probably is. Yeah. I've set up quite a few different blinds. Um, I've done, well, I've been in blank banks blinds. I've done the redneck blinds. Um, I don't think I've seen some muddy blinds. I haven't built any of those. Um, and then, yeah, kind of just got a connection with the guy who was a, a local dealer here in Michigan, the 360 and had seen the 360 blinds a couple times and really liked the quality of them, the way the windows worked, uh, just kind of the comfortability out of them, the, the, the uh, visibility was a huge thing. Um, you know, just kind of the overall patch, the overall quality of the blind, including like the really nice metal stands they got. Um, so yeah, I, I was approached, um, by him to, to, uh, become a dealer. And, uh, so yeah, uh, beginning in 2024, I'm going to be official dealer for, uh, you know, my own dealer and distributor for 360 blinds here in, uh, Lapeer County. So 
that was pretty, that's been pretty exciting. And yeah, I, I definitely do like them. I like that. One of the things I really like about the 360 blind is it's you, you actually have to build it. And for some cases that can be, you know, some guys don't really care for doing that. You know, they like the ones that are, that are built. Um, but we also pre-build them as a dealer. So you can buy the blind completely pre-built. And then if you got equipment or something, we can load it on your trailer. If you got a skid steer or something like that, you can go put it up, you know, just like your redneck blind. Or if you can't get equipment in there, anything like that, you can always haul it in with a four wheeler, UTV tractor trailer, whatever. And then you can just build the thing right on site. So we do a lot of those where, you know, guys can't only get equipment in whatever, and you can build a blind in the timber. I love doing that, you know, with guys that want to hunt closer in the, you know, uh, bedding areas that I've cut in and all that. So that's one of the cool features to the 360s. And you can also customize it when you build it with whatever windows. They've got bowl windows and they've got gun windows that are different size. So you can really customize, and they're all interchangeable panels, especially on the actual 360 blinds. So that's kind of cool, you know, for different shooting situations, you know, locations where you're going to put the blind. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> we just got off this whole blind discussion in the past two episodes. So, you know, 360, we didn't really hit on too much, so I wanted to get your opinion on them. And uh, I think they're good blinds. I've been in them. Uh, those in the next gen are really similar to one another, a company out of Pennsylvania. I just feel like, um, you know, to each their own, you've got to see the blinds and, and feel them out. I do like the window setup like you talked about. You know, the 360 view plus, you know, there's limited gaps in between windows, so the spacing's awesome. You know, your visual is fantastic. And I, I do like the window approach and the, you know, I guess uh, I guess the dressings around the windows. It's kind of a nice setup. So I'm not opposed to those. I'm just not big on panel blinds. Just haven't been, and that's just my own particular opinion. I think some yeah. guys love them, you know, and so yeah. teach yep. them. Right. No, no, for sure. I mean, there's definitely pluses and minus to every one. And, you know, I, I mean, like the redneck blinds, I really like the one piece composite blind. I think it's, it's awesome. I just, I just don't like the windows near as much as the 360. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, you win some, lose some, you kind of, you have to, you have to just compare, you know, each blind and see whatever best fits you. So. Yeah. And maybe it's a call out to the blind manufacturers or maybe a new manufacturer to come up with a one piece blind that is, um, I guess rigid enough to hold multiple windows kind of in a formation like we're talking about now. I have mm. seen a blind company out of Texas, I think. It was metal. So it's heavy and hot would be would be immediately <laughs> what I would think. But you know, you know, anybody who's listening to this, and I'm I'm sure that there's dealers and obviously manufacturers that listen to this podcast, you know, if you come up with a product like that and uh, you know, have a solution, you know, we're all ears here. All right. Um let's kind of yeah. let's kind of get into you know, one of the topics we want to talk about was kind of fixing soil. I think we wanted to get there and dealing with bad soils. And I also, you know, wanted to get into maybe some of the trials and tribulations you've had over the years and prescriptive changes that you've either recommended to clients or things that you've done on your own property. So I want to go through your planning season this year. Talk about, you know, maybe things that you did on your own property or client properties that have worked or things that have failed and your kind of remedy to, I guess, resolve those issues. I know that some of us have dealt with a lot of drought. And um, in another example I gave on a prior podcast, we talked about foliar spraying and a way to introduce, you know, water and, you know, minerals. Uh, the other concept I think I might have briefly talked about was uh, this compost tea brewer that I, I had built. And I actually was able to uh, <laughs> to deploy it. And uh, with some success, I am actually noticing a positive response. I'll talk a little bit about that on the podcast 
And uh, we'll get into maybe some of the things that, you know, you learned in, in your kind of eco region. And, you know, I know you deal with sandy soils a lot. So I want to talk yep. about tough soils and, and uh, your approach to tough soils. Yeah, so that's definitely been a uh, big, big uh, topic, it seems like, lately with the regenerative agriculture, no-till food plots, all that stuff. And that's that's really been one of the things I've tried to focus on, and, you know, mainly just because of the situation that I'm in. So a little bit of background about the soil I'm dealing with. So we've got a farm on the west side of the state of Manistee, and um, had it for a, a while, and i uh, been doing food plots in it for Oh, probably five or six years now, pretty consistently. Before then, it wasn't really, you know, consistent. Um, so then, you know, probably about three years ago, I got really serious about, you know, really stepping up my game with, you know, building soil and really trying to have quality food plots after just being frustrated with, you know, not having, you know, very successful growth and, and you know, any real tonnage to speak of. Um, obviously we've got, you know, harsher winters up there and, you know, though having late season food is, is, uh, really critical to, you know, um, obviously holding more deer, more hunting opportunities, and then, uh, you know, healthier deer going into the, into the uh, winter. So, so yeah, one of the things that, that, uh, has been huge for me has been foliar applications like you're talking about with, with fertilizers. Um, and then, also, at the same time, is cover crops. Um, you know, as soon as I started really getting into cover crops, um, I was working with a couple different companies and uh, started creating my own blends and, you know, trying to figure out what was working working best for sandy soils and, you know, really trying to add as much organic matter as I could. And that's kind of at the same time when I met Brad Harper from Harper Growing Solutions, and uh, he's got a full line of, uh, liquid products that are a carbon-based fertilizer. And uh, so I started using those, and uh, that was about this year, I believe, will be the third or fourth year um, using his products. And uh, another thing also that's pretty unique about the situation, I guess I'd like to explain, um, let guys in so they know, is, uh, you know, this farm, I basically, it's I wouldn't say it's 100% organic, but it's it's really close. I really haven't used uh, hardly any herbicide at all. Some some of these plots I'll be talking about, really, I've, I've used zero herbicide in them. Um, so it's really all been a minimal till situation, um, you know, so, and, and really relying almost 100% on, on cover crops to suppress my weeds. So that's a big thing, you know, to tackle at first. You know, I, I wasn't really sure how it was going to go. And, uh, in the last three years, I've, I've learned a lot to say the least. <laughs> There's a lot of challenges, you know, with doing that. And, uh, you know, you can't do that with every property in every situation, but I've had a lot of clients that have wanted to start backing off on using herbicides and stuff like that. So that's really driven me to, you know, start trying, trialing and error, a lot of different cover crop strategies and, and stuff as far as, you know, building soil and reducing my, my herbicides. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, I mean, really the way I started was doing a limited till and I was really heavy on my grains. Um, and I also was really fortunate to be able to rent a no-till drill from our local conservation district. So that's been really huge. And I've always tried to not just cater to one planting method or another when I'm doing different trials or, you know, different blends. Um, because I know every guy and every client that I work with 
is has a different situation as far as equipment and budget and soil and all that stuff. So I've done a lot of different things, all the way from, you know, minimal tillage to, you know, heavy tillage, you know, broadcasting really high rates of cover crops to using no-till drills. Um, you know, I've done the summer release blend um, through many, many of you probably are, you know, familiar with Grant Wood's summer release blend that they do um, where you're basically, you're planting your spring mix and then you're coming back with your no-till drill and drilling your fall mix right into it. But there's a lot of different challenges that go with that. And, and one of the biggest challenges that I've found, no matter if you're going to do the no-till drill or if you're actually going to do the, you know, if you're going to pack down a cover crop or whatever that is, is to really suppress weeds and at the same time build that organic matter is you've got to get a really good cover crop established. And that's really where Brad Harper's product, you know, came into play for me because I was having a hard time just getting a cover crop established, you know, like rye or type of annual clover. Um, and, and that's got to be really the base and the foundation of your, of your, I guess, no-till process or building soil. So I started using his products and uh, that really, you know, helped me out tremendously with just having a, a, you know, a halfway decent cover crop, you know, to start out with in the spring. And um, so then I, once I got that cover crop, started to get that established. um, And then I could really start suppressing weeds, building some soil and then, you know, I would plant through that, and then I would hit it again with a foliar. Um, and then I was using his liquid lime products, and we were fixing my pH at the same time. You know, this soil's got a pH of about 5 and uh, a CEC, you know, cation exchange capacity, for those who don't know, of about 1.3. And organic matter was about 1, I think, when I started. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was tough, you know, starting out there and, you know, you've seen everybody around you grow these really nice food plots and it's like, what, you know, how in the world are they doing that? So, so it's been a long time, you know, a long process to, you know, kind of getting to where I am right now, which, you know, I'm by no means, you know, have really mastered this, but I've, I've learned a lot and um, I've tried to, to share this with as many people as I can. And, and the more, you know, guys like yourself and other guys, we, you know, the more you try things, the more you share ideas, um, you know, even with clients I've got that are trying different ideas, it, it's fun to really learn together and, and uh, you know, see what works and what doesn't. So <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and, and to, to hit on the sandy soil topic, and this is really kind of a topic for really any soil, one of the keys to success is building, you know, humic material or humids. And to do that is you have to have decomposing material being present in the soil all the time. So mm-hmm. my theory over the years, and let's go back. I started this nine years ago. So yeah. this is before Grant Woods. This is before any of these guys were actually doing this. My theory was simply this. I'm really, really cheap, okay? And uh, yep. a lot of guys can relate to this. I wanted, I didn't have the equipment. At the time, I didn't even have a tractor. I was just basically doing things with an ATV. And I said, okay, what is the most economic means of planting that I can get? And so the one thing that I focused on are what, what, what do things grow? What things grow really well that I can just throw on the ground? And the mm-hmm. most obvious is rye. Okay. A cereal grain sure. like rye. And, you know, when you start playing with all these different seeds, you start realizing, oh my goodness, like the seed that I can throw on the ground grows. And, oh, you know, in nature, the same thing applies. So when you start playing with these different types of seeds, even corn does it. So, you know, to go as far as corn, 
and beans and some of these larger seeds, you know, where you think that they have this have this maximum depth, and they do for ideal soil growth or opportunity for root structure, et cetera. However, you you may have to you know overseed or increase the seeding level, and so through that process, I was able to play with you know different seed types, and then I said, okay, well, I'm going to build this roller crimping system because I had seen it and I knew it was something from the sixties and seventies where they were creating these weed mats and they were using it basically as a mat to create moisture. All it was, was a barrier and that's all it really is. And then I realized, okay, well, if I just use one species, like if I did like uh, Jeff Sturz's method where it's just buckwheat, even though it creates a good canopy layer, there's a tendency to have other varieties of plants in combination with buckwheat developing. So then I said, okay, well, if I have these synergies of plants, maybe they'll outcompete because they'll kind of balance the soil and the nutrient uptake will be a little bit more, I guess, leveled. And then mm. the other piece of it, I started playing with the root material. I said, okay, well, if I start thinking about the dispersion of these seeds and these plants, and then I think about its, you know, its, it's a viable root spacing. And then I think about its, you know, its tillering or leaf structure above the ground. And I think about that spacing then I'll come up with this like optimal kind of combination. So then I started playing with combinations of plants. And then my next evolution, so this is probably, I don't know, maybe six years ago. What I started doing was I said, okay, I'm going to fight the plants around the food plot. Because what happened was I could control most of what happened within the food plot. But exterior to that, I was getting a lot of seed dispersion, etc. Now, you know, it's yep. gonna, they're going to come from all over the place. But, you know, I started building and thinking about kind of around my food plots. So now I'm managing the exterior and the interior of the food plot. And then in combination to that, what I was doing was I was selecting, you know, plants that would meet and, and I would, I would grossly uh, overestimate. Usually a lot of times I put down too much seed and I would try to figure out timing of everything. So I was timing these plants where, you know, I had a, a higher percentage of uh, a, a grain or grass and you know, whatever you want to call it at a certain yep. state and I was able to time up kind of this, this, uh, you know, sequencing. And then I figured, okay, well, if I had a 60 day crop versus 110 day crop, you know, how would that uh, result for me? I'm feeding deer longer, but what is my gap between the next planting? Now, again, in the, any of these cycles, I never used a no-till drill. I've used no-till drills, but not in these yep. scenarios. So yep. what I did was I just was Johnny Appleseed. I was throwing seed on the ground. I was managing with a, you know, a backpack sprayer, some of the plants around there. And I was timing up, you know, all these individuals. And granted, this is nine years ago. Okay. So over that time of learning, I've simplified things even further. And not only am now I'm managing everything, I'm adding foliars into the equation and, and I'm timing them at the correct time based on the vegetative state of the plant. So I've kind of advanced my ideology. And, you know, on top of that, I've I basically stabilized my ground. When I say that is I've added the right amount of nutrients that are, you know, some of them may be, uh, now I'm actually gotten back. I've added some th- synthetics, but previous to that, I was adding rock dust and I was adding some natural amendments. And depending on your soil type and a lot of, I would, I would suggest for everybody, go analyze the type of soil that's on your landscape and start yep. studying you know, for that particular soil, for like sandy soil, you know, I need to build a lot of organic material. Well, you need something that develops a root at a fast rate that can deal with droughty conditions. And, you know, in the case where you can't irrigate or water those particular areas, you know, the focus is is kind of overwhelming the, the seed bank with 
a huge volume of plants. You're, you're, you're trying to develop root establishment and growth. So the best thing you can do is have a longer growing plant uh, versus shorter growing plant. And, and um, yep. you know, that, that kind of establishes this biome and, and you're building habitat within the soil to create these, these activity cycles where you're getting a lot of microbial activity. And when you go reach out and, and you can tell, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, you'll be able to physically see those difference. And um, there's materials out there. Lenadite's one of the ones that people use to kind of incubate your seeds. There's just a lot of things you can do to improve and create these great environments for seed development. But it all has to do with timing of rains and nutrient cycling and thinking, you know, how to have minimal disturbance. And you can meet Johnny Appleseed on the spot like I was for years and years and just throwing seed on the ground. And then you kind of, you know, look at my evolution and yep. I've actually simplified things, Colin, where I'm not planting, you know, 13 species. I'm planting these seven exact species that I think will have the right combination of upper and lower growth on the land, you know, on the landscape. So I get good root material and then good biomass above the ground. And I'm weighing that in my equation, you know, at this point of, of how I develop my food plot sequencing. And and uh, I kind of went on a rant there, but... You know, I, I, I just want to explain kind of what I do in my evolution, because I don't think people understand. People think like I'm this timber guy and I'm like, I spent a lot of time on trying to figure out how to do food plots the cheapest way possible. And um, yeah. I never had a no-till drill. So I don't know if that well, echoes with you at all. Yeah, no, hundred percent. That's, that's definitely very accurate to a lot of my situations. Obviously I mentioned I, I do use no-till drill, but not exclusively. So I didn't have that. I didn't have that for the first uh, a couple of years. I mean, I've, I've just now in the last, uh, I think two years I've been using no-till drill. So, um, and, and that's one of the other things too, that I think has gotten a lot of hype lately and, and not to say at all, the no-till drills aren't good or anything in that, in that way. But, you know, I have, I have seen some different struggles using a no-till drill, you know, and, and I can just list off a couple of the different things that I have as far as my situation one of the things that I've noticed over using no-till drill is, you know, from a weed suppression standpoint and, you know, establishing cover crops, um, which basically, you know, all of my, whether it's a fall annual of brassicas or whether it's a spring mix or anything like that, you know, that is my cover crop. You know, I mean, you know, in the fall I'm planting rye in with my brassicas and I'm layering the rye a lot of times. So, you know, that is my next spring cover crop. So it's, it's really critical for me to get that established, you know, at that, in that time period, like you talked about with timing, timing is really critical, you know, with cover crops and we can dive more into that. Um, but one of the things that I really noticed with using a no-till drill was, you know, obviously every no-till drill, you're going to have row spacing. So, you know, you run your no-till drill through and, you know, let's say it's just a lightly tilled ground. Well, you know, obviously every soil is going to have weed seeds in it. You know, some are obviously worse than others. Um, and you know, every time you leave, I guess that you will put it in perspective, a square inch of soil that doesn't have something that you want growing there, you know, something is naturally going to grow there. Typically, you know, it might not be right away, but it's going to fill in. And that's just the way, you know, God created our, you know, soil and the seed bank and everything like that. So, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned through doing these, these, these no-till drills and doing these cover crops is a lot of times when I've used the no-till drill, I've actually had worse results than when I'm actually heavily, heavily broadcasting 
you know, these different cover crop mixes because I'm getting really good seed distribution on almost every square inch. Um, and obviously I can do that with blends like rye and all this stuff. Obviously, you know, you're not going to go super heavy with brassica stuff like that, but, um, that's one of the struggles. Um, another struggle too, that I've seen on property with no-till drills, um, is really hard clay ground. Um, I had a client that, uh, that has a uh, Genesis no-till, I think it's the Genesis 5, and um, he's got real clay, kind of uh, uh, loamy soil, and uh, he's up on the east east side of Michigan, and uh, he did some some uh, uh, planting in the spring to do a, a cover crop, and of course this year we had really weird weather. You know, we had a, a fairly wet spring, and then it kind of went right into a drought, and what happened is that soil was, was wet when he planted and then he planted into it. And basically I think part of it was he planted a little bit too deep, but the main majority after going back up there and kind of observing everything, um, is that ground just became super hard. And, um, you know, obviously sometimes you got to come in and, and lightly, lightly fluff that ground. Um, and some of that might've been because he was going with more of a tillage, you know, system before. And a lot of times you get that compaction, but some of these areas were completely virgin areas and it was a very similar situation. So, you know, sometimes you've got to really assess what your soil is, what your weather conditions are, you know, before you, you know, just get a no-till drill and start drilling, you know, and, and wondering, you know, what happened after, after, uh, you know, you're not getting the, the type of uh, germination and growth that you'd hope for. So, you know, I think there's just some things to consider. Obviously, no-till drills, there's a lot of different benefits to them. You know, time savings, the soil health aspect, you know. And, and another thing, too, that's really important that I've learned, kind of going into a couple of different major factors into, you know, establishing cover crops, is is really deer browse pressure is another thing that I've, that's been a big struggle for myself and a lot of the clients that have tried to establish cover crops. And so that's where I've learned to adapt and, and do different seeds that deer really don't want to eat. And it seems like, an, you know, a, a, a bad thing for most guys, but that's really been important for me in the kind of the off season. So I'm talking about typically, you know, kind of spring through the summer. And obviously we want to have plants on the property that the deer are utilizing, you know, like clover, alfalfa, stuff like that, that, that were, uh, you know, we're having supplemental, you know, uh, um, vegetation on the property, but, you know, in your main destination plots of these other areas, you know, one of the big observations I learned this year with doing summer release, we had a really, uh, wild drought, um, for probably two months at our farm. We probably only got, I don't know, maybe an inch of rain, probably less than that. And, you know, with sandy soil, that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I did, I did go through and you know, last year I prepped an area out. This was zero herbicide, went through, mowed the grass short, lightly rototilled it, let it sit all winter. And then actually went through there and frost seeded, uh, clover, crimson clover, uh, a red clover, and then a, um, alfalfa in there too. And with the fairly dry spring we had, it didn't have really good germination. I had a fair amount that made it and, and you know, the frost really helped with that. But, uh, so I had to change directions a little bit, you know, with, with not having as good of a, a uh, cover crop as I was hoping, you know, right out of the gate in the spring. And so I ended up going through that and drilling 
right through uh, with no-till drill um, with the uh, summer release from green cover seed. And uh, so I, you know, I, I luckily I had a little bit of moisture in the ground when I was drilling. And uh, so I got germination in about three weeks and I was surprised when we finally got some rain, you know, it didn't really do a whole lot for probably a month. And we finally got a decent rain and it started to grow. And then, you know, right when we hit kind of that beginning of July, we really started getting a lot of rain and man, did it explode. I mean, I came up there late July, early August and, and it was just, you know, I had really good grain sorghum. And so I went through and really observed what I had growing, what did good with the drought, you know, what were my deer not targeting. And, um, I am really impressed with the grain sorghum. Um, I've done it for a couple of years now and it's been really good for building a lot of, uh, root structure and organic matter. And of course, you know, a lot of us talk about cover crops and organic matter, but really what I'm, what I'm looking for is a lot of root structure and, and stuff that's really pumping, uh, that, that uh, organic matter down underneath the soil surface. I know a lot of us focus on what's on top because it's easy to see, but you know, organic matter is really what we're building underneath that soil. And so I had a lot of really good root structure and um, I even had some corn that was next to that grain sorghum that I drilled. And of course, you know, that with the drought, it didn't really make it well, but just the deer browse on the sorghum compared to the corn was just crazy to see, you know, if you plant the two together, you know, deer being just those concentrated selectors, they were just hammering that, that fresh corn, but they wouldn't touch that, that green sorghum. That really gave that green sorghum a chance to get established and give me a really good cover crop and also a late season food source. You know, it's not quite as good as corn, but it's pretty darn good, you know, when you can get it to put a seed hen on in, in late season. So I know that was kind of a, a little bit of a rant, but I'm sure give give you guys a backstory on where I'm at right now and how my growing season went. Colin, you mentioned something a little bit ago about having plants in the cycle that deer don't eat. What are the what are some of those as an example that you like to have kind of in your blends? And it could be a blend for the summer months or the fall months. What what do you think works in your scenario? Yeah, so um, a couple of them just off the top of my head would be. Uh, Harry Vetch, I've done a couple different trials with Harry Vetch, and um, it, it seems to hold withstand quite a bit of deer deer browse, and I don't think it's really high on the deer preference, you know, as far as, uh, you know, um, what they like eating a lot of as far as tonnage, um, the actual pressure that it receives from deer browse. Um, and then also I've, I've done quite a few just, you know, simple analysis of just pulling up you know, the root structure on those compared to crimson clover, red clover, stuff like that. And, um, you know, you can actually see the, the nitrogen, you know, root nodules on that hairy vetch. It just put, it puts a lot of nitrogen in your ground. And, um, so I've, I've looked at a lot of those and been really impressed with that. And then another one that's, I've been pretty impressed with, obviously with the grain sorghum, I've talked about that. Milo is another one that seems to do pretty well. Um, with withstanding, you know, the deer don't really bother it. And these are mainly, uh, you know, warm season an, uh, annual crops. Um, another one would be sun hemp. I've found pretty good success with sun hemp. Uh, obviously that puts in, that puts a lot of carbon in your ground and has, you know, has a real big stock, you know, if you can get it to grow good. So those are a couple that I you know off kind of off the top of my head that I can think of 
I don't know if you've ever experimented with any other uh, any other ones for kind of warm season crops. That was the main ones I was focusing on. Yeah, I've done flax, canola. Uh, I've done all sorts of different types of seeds and the millets, and I've just you know played around with a few things. I, I like in my you know when I do my food plot blends, I've got my perennial and my annual side, and typically my my staple is throughout my annual is you know something like a, I think I said a high level carbon producing you know kind of plant like like an oat at least in the in the spring months and then you know going into those fall months you know i i try to introduce the oat again in a lower rate and then something that will be winter hardy but in that you know i always had the red clover i've kind of consistently used red clover that's been my go-to it's my my cheapest option but having you know something staple in there just for ground stabilization and adding texture to the soil remember you know, a lot of people that are doing this throw and grow method, and I like your example of just, you know, covering the landscape, you know, you need texture on the ground. And like a good example, I have a food plot right in the center of my property and I've got oats and buckwheat growing. And right now I planted late. I'm on, uh, I think I'm on day 35 and uh, that's a 52 to 62 day crop, right? So it's, it's got a 10 day window before it kind of gets to the point where it could be crimped. And I was, I, basically what I did is I went and I just broadcast uh, about, some, I want to say about uh, about 60 pounds an acre of wheat nope. and about about six pounds of red clover. And that's nope. that's just nope. a holding food plot. But it, we had just these heavy rains, right? If I didn't have the texture of that, you know, grass growing in there, you know, and, and buckwheat, I, I would have been in big trouble. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I didn't till it. I didn't roller crimp it i didn't do anything i just throw seed on the ground and um yep. I, I could go back and and i could just mow the the oats right now set them back as low as possible and you know at a young growth stage they're going to be edible and the buckwheat will actually come back even after mowing because it, it didn't reach seed stage so yep. you know there's an example of something you can do that's pretty inexpensive and uh you know something i like to do i wanted to kind of get to foliars real quick and i know we, you've been on this quite a bit and i know you <laughs> experience with you know, Brad Harper's uh, solutions there, you know, what, yeah. what have you used his foliars and what have you noticed as a result of using the foliars on your particular property or clients? Yeah. So um, I've noticed quite a few different things. So I guess I'll, I'll break you through one of the uh, struggles that I had in kind of a, a, a solution that me and Brad kind of worked through. Um, and that was with my annual sorghum screen. I believe it was my first year we were working together. I put on um, his regular foliar uh, spray that he does and um, which, you know, you can apply, you know, at planting or you can apply it as a foliar, you know, right on the actual plant. And uh, so I actually did that at planting, I believe for the sorghum screen. I also put down his calcium and then uh, I also put down his liquid lime too. And, um, one of the things I started to notice, I, I had pretty good germination, we had good rain started to come up and I started getting, um, a lot of different brown dots and stuff in my, in my sorghum screen. So I sent pictures to him and I'm like, what, you know, what do you think this is? He's really good at, you know, kind of problem solving. He works a lot of other farm stuff. And, uh, so he's like, well, he's like, I think it might be, you know, a, a magnesium, uh, you know, high magnesium soil. 
So we go on there and uh, he started giving us some, you know, different recommendations of what we should do moving forward. So he said, let's hit it with a pen cal and a calcium, which is another one of his products. And uh, so the pen cal is more of a, uh, more for your actual soil and the calcium actually more for your actual plant uptake. So we hit with both of those products and um, that really was a ticket to, you know, raising my calcium levels in my soil. And um, because of my sandy soil, it had higher magnesium and Brad can go in a lot more detail, um, you know, on that, uh, you know, if we do a later, a later episode or later podcast with him. So that was one of the things, another big trial uh, as pertains to, you know, kind of fall food plots they had big success with was I started using his product, which is a liquid nitrogen that he came up with. And uh, so that was a pretty cool trial we did. That's actually on my YouTube channel for those of you who are interested in, in uh, going on there and checking it out. I did basically, I broke it, uh, uh, my destination plot up in about three different test plots and they were all right about an eighth of an acre. And uh, so what I did was I used his foliar product and then I used his uh, a liquid nitrogen uh, product too together, which is what Brad recommended I did. And then I also did a granular, just a regular granular urea nitrogen. And um, so I did a, a half rate in one of the plots and then I, of the liquid product. And then I did a full rate of liquid nitrogen. And then I did about 30 pounds of granular nitrogen. And, um, and so I, you know, I recorded it, you know, tested it all out. Uh, we did get some timely rains. We didn't really get a lot of rain in the first probably two weeks that I did those. Um, and I actually applied that to my brassicas and, um, my brassicas were probably, probably about three weeks old when I did that, you know, after planting, just to give you guys a timeline. Um, so, you know, you figure if you're planting, you know, whatever, first, second week in August, you're, you know, right around, you know, Labor Day coming up here. A lot of guys are doing, you know, our, our um, we're putting our, our foliar and our liquid nitrogen, you know, on our uh, brassicas. So, so then we came up and Brad actually came by our farm. We shot the video and, uh, you know, we really compared our leaf size with, you know, each one of our plots. And it was really cool to see the difference in not only the leaf size, but the actual color of the leaf. And, you know, I have utilization cages in those two and to nose the deer brows on each one of those, you know, different uh, plots was really cool too. Um, and I think there's a couple different reasons. Obviously that liquid nitrogen is a slow release nitrogen, um, which is really nice because you can get that, you know, you know, a couple different jumps every rain where it's really coming into that plant. Um, and then another big thing too is obviously when you switch over to liquids, that plant is absorbing it a lot faster because your molecule and especially with it being a nitrogen, it's a lot more volatile to, you know, to, uh, you know, going back into your atmosphere. So, you know, when I did that, that granular, we didn't have rain for, I believe it was probably a week or two. And, uh, you know, how much of that actually evaporated and, you know, back in the atmosphere, I don't know. Um, but that's a big thing, you know, with doing the, the, um, the liquids is that plant is actually, you know, taking that in. And the other thing I did too, and I recommend for you guys to do is if you're going to do a liquid nitrogen, you can go through, you know, spray your plants and then you can come back through with a whole nother, 
sprayer full of just straight water and you can just soak your plants and they'll soak it right in your dirt. And, um, that's what I did for the trial. And, um, so it seemed to work out really well. And I've had, you know, lots of other different things that I've worked with, you know, with Brad and had really good success with, um, I'm by no means, you know, I've mastered, uh, these foliar sprays, you know, Brad, <laughs> giving me a lot of guidance with these is this was completely brand new to me three years ago. So still, you still learn a lot with them, but, uh, so yeah, that's, that's a couple different examples of successes that I've had and, you know, kind of working through some problems and stuff that I've had. So, yeah. And I think those are great examples of, you know, using a product, trying it in different ways and doing the testing and I'll kind of go through some of the basics for me. And I'm such a simple person when it comes to this is, uh, as an alternative, uh, I use, you know, fish fertilizer and you can buy it. And I do roughly, I can make about a hundred gallons and I'll add a fish fertilizer, a fulvic or humic acid. Okay. So mm-hmm. those are some examples. Um, I will also add maybe a little sea kelp in there if I have some available and these are all soluble, right? So they're, they're able to dissolve. So they're able to go through like a, a, a pump sprayer pretty easily and you can, Spray it either, you know, with a backpack sprayer or in my case, I, I run it off my ATV. I've got a nice little, you know, small, I think it's, uh, I forget what the uh, the brand is, but it does a nice job, you know, push, putting out some of those foliars. And yeah. the one thing I've noticed, at least in those examples, is, you know, I've got well water that isn't hard, right? So you can test your water. You don't want well water over like, I think, 150 parts per million. And, you know, that ties up some of the nutrients uh, you want something that chelates or provides opportunities for other micronutrients, et cetera, to kind of co- co- co-locate. Some some nutrients don't do well around each other, so you kind of got to focus on kind of that. Uh, I like to put phosphorus in my mixes, and so I've got a grading of phosphorus. I do not use uh, a slow-release nitrogen in most instances, but I think to Colin's point, that's a great example and does really well. I like the idea where you added water to it. So it not only just sits on a leaf, it actually kind of, it, it might drip down to the roots, you know, and give, you know, you a good opportunity to kind of have uptake in, in that capacity as well. Some of these plants that have really waxy surfaces, it's really hard to get them to kind of, the stomata doesn't open as well, and it doesn't necessarily absorb the foliar as easily. So those fulvic, if you add a fulvic acid, that's going to help big time. And so in those examples, I would add a fulvic and, and that's for foliar for drenching, which is a totally different thing. And, and that's where I was talking about my compost tea, you know, adding kind of a humic, it, it also creates an opportunity at least to stabilize. And what we call it a buffer in another podcast, allow a lot of these, you know, other, I guess we'll say minerals to kind of co-locate and be more available to plants. It, it allows basically better absorption of, of the nutrient. And there's certain nutrients that do better kind of in soils, and calcium is one of those. Mm. A lot of times you'll see calcium being applied directly to the plant. It does work. I mean, and a lot of it's just timing. So you don't want to apply it when it's really hot. You don't want to apply it when it's under you know 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, you don't want to apply it during a heavy rain. And so usually when the birds are chirping, that's the best time. <laughs> so that would be the rule of thumb. And the stomata is most open at that point. Uh, there's this whole, you know, intake of, you know, CO2 and expiration of oxygen and cycling. And basically, you know, some, I guess, when you think of the plant itself, there's this cambium later and there's a xylem and a phalum. And basically things go up and down in the plant. And some things do better at the root level as it, you know, 
transverses into those roots and travels up into the plant. So as it travels the xylem, that upward flow. And so, you know, those could be things like, you know, um, calcium or manganese. Like those would be good examples of, you know, things that do better than those examples. Phosphorus would be one that you want to put on the leaf surface. And it does a good job translocating down the phalum into the actual structure of the plant. And a lot of this is the flows driven kind of by like the pressure, you know, in, in the air, as well as the pressure within the plant. And it kind of moves things down these pathways. So there's a science piece of this. And it's kind of knowing kind of what were those, I would say, key nutrients that do really well. You know, phosphorus, magnesium, sulfur, nitrogen, sodium, chlorine. Those are the, the top ones that actually do well as applying in a foliar. You know, some of the other ones that don't do as well as iron doesn't do as well. Um, iron doesn't do well in the roots either. So, you know, and <laughs> iron's a really important nutrient. And a lot of times, you know, there's uh, strategies applying foliars and when to apply them. Like I said earlier, applying them with a humic is a good idea or a fulvic is a good idea. So just kind of think about yep. that as a strategy. Um, I want to be give people, Colin, like options to think outside of just going to your typical, you know, soluble nitrogen. You know, they've got these, I guess, mix-in chemicals that allow it to be little more stabilized and you know slowly releasing you know to that plant so it doesn't necessarily volatize as easily so it's just kind of these things to think about but really i mean you can get really simple you know 100 gallons you know you get an ibc tote 100 gallons and you add in like fish fertilizer uh molasses and a little bit of humic and right there if you spray that in your food plot you'd be amazed at the uh the productivity one of the things with uh, fish fertilizer, for example, it smells really, really bad. And, um, you know, it's a paste, basically, that's broken down. When you apply that to a plant, the deer, the deer like, come for it big time. So this is a little secret to one of my food plot layouts where I'll put fish fertilizer now in a backpack sprayer, and I'll go and I'll spray a section of the plants, maybe even the shrubbery, and you'll watch those, those deer kind of concentrate around those areas. So that's kind of a strategy, and I don't know if... You know, you had heard about, about that before, Colin, but that's just some little tricks that I do on my property, and I think that helps people out. Yeah, no, for sure, and that's <clears throat> that's funny you say that because I, I haven't heard of that specifically, but um, I also have I've been messing around a little bit recently with some other stuff, some other products, and, and one of them is a Redmond Mineral, and um, I'm doing some different trials on that this year. Um, for those of you who know uh, who Jim Ward is, I know he's been on this podcast. He's done a lot of different stuff with uh, with uh, Redmond Minerals and their soil condition over the last couple of years and had, had really good success all the way from the timber to food plots. So there's a couple different things. You know, I'm doing a couple different trials right now, um, and I broke down some of them in a, a, a recent YouTube video that I shot, and I'll be uploading the next week or so. Um, and, you know, I've been using – I'm going to doing a trial of their Redmond Pine Tan Mineral um, as well as their soil conditioner too. Um, and I kind of go into more detail in that video, uh, explaining, you know, what those two products are. Um, and so I've done a couple different test strips and, um, you know, I've had talking through talking to Jim Ward and a couple of his clients and stuff, they have had really good success with, uh, you know, applying that year after year. And I know because it is more of a salt based product. Um, I know that was one of the concerns, you know, with using it is having those sodium tie ups or just building up too much sodium in your, in your, in your soil, which can lead to a lot of other issues. Um, but he's had a couple clients that have, I mean, I believe he's got one client that has, 
been doing it on his property for like eight years. And he said literally when his deer come out of his food plot on his property, they go past all his other food plots and they're going to the one that he's been applying that Redmond mineral to. And, you know, I don't know if that's just because his soil is depleted in one specific mineral and those plants are getting that from this, you know, supplement. And there's a lot of other, you know, factors that play into that. But, um, you know, of course you could probably figure that out if you had a soil test, um, which, which is as well as this trial. I'm also, me and Brad are working on a couple different trials right now um, where we're going to, we're pulling soil tests. We're doing, you know, trialing a couple different products and then we're going to pull soil samples again and really kind of go over, you know, the before and afters of these, um, break down these soil tests and and really show, you know, what the, what the results were. And we're actually going to try to do another one, uh, podcast, you know, in the next coming weeks where we break down my soil samples because I've got one from 2020, I believe it was 2021. And then we've got one from this year. And, um, it was really, really cool to see, you know, all the changes, you know, not only in the soil and actually in my plant health, but then to actually see it on paper too. So that was cool. You know, it's really encouraging to see that. So we're going to kind of break down, you know, Brad is really good with, uh, soil samples and breaking that stuff down. So guys can, you know, understand easy, um, including myself. So, <laughs> um, Oh, absolutely. So, it's, it's highly complicated. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the other things I did want to mention too, that I've, I've had quite a few clients lately that I've either been working with or, you know, doing a couple of food plot jobs for and stuff like that. And I try to really emphasize and, you know, for you, you, you that are guys that are listening is the over, or I guess under use, I should say of, um, utilization cages. And I think they're a, such a simple tool and they've given me so much intel on a lot of different things as far as deer density, you know, what your soil is, you know, we've got a drought, you know, that in a rain gauge can give you a lot of intel, you know, on what's going on on your property and, and on your food plot. And that's given me a lot of intel, you know, on what plant, what, what plants deer want to eat, what plants they don't. Obviously a lot of that you can just observe, by going through your food plot and you'll very quickly find realize what plants are actively growing and what plants are almost demolished, you know, and, and have a lot of browse pressure. But that utilization page has really been a key uh, part of, you know, a lot of my, my data and observation. And it's, it's a really a simple thing. For those of you who don't know what a utilization cage is, it's just a small, you know, maybe a three foot by three foot cage. And then, you know, it's maybe three, four foot tall, you can put a, you know, some guys will kind of enclose it so the deer can't reach down with their, their heads and get in there. And it's just basically measuring, you know, if there were no deer, if your deer were not on the property, um, you know, what those plants would be like with absolutely zero deer browse, you know, versus the outside of the cage where, you know, they're, they're browsing it. So, um, you know, it's a really simple thing, but often overlooked and, um, so anyhow, <laughs> well, I think, and, I, and I echo that. I think it's important because it gives you kind of yep. a, a measuring stick. And also to that point is, like you said, there the deer are going to be, it's going to be devoid of deer pressure in that particular location. So you get yep. to see, you know, how well your plants are doing in that particular soil. And you'll find some areas across your food plots that do better than others. And yep. if you're giving up, you know, a small 
three by three, three foot by three foot, you know, kind of a footprint, you know, and you're getting intel and data and you're worried again, you're worried about, I, I've actually considered this season going and using that as kind of a blockade of putting fencing in just to move the deer around, but actually using it as an enclosure cage, like just to get data on that yeah. particular section. It's a really good idea to move deer around your food plots. Yeah. The, the, you know, the other thing is, you know, taking actually samples and look and, and, and calculating the biomass and multiplying that out and figuring out what your actual volume is versus in, in the comparable, what your volume was. And you can actually yeah. compare what your output may have been. And what you can do is over time, you can look at your, your numbers as they change, right? From your camera data, et cetera, you know, you, yep. you, you can do a count and kind of come up with, you know, the fruit production value across that landscape. I work with, with my clients. Colin, I want to go back to one particular topic and I don't, I don't want to let go of this because I think this is an excellent point and something that we talked about on other podcasts with, you know, salt in your landscape. And I want to just bring up this point. I brought up the, the fish example and, um, you know, some of these fish are harvested in seawater and, you know, they're basically pulverized and essentially it's a paste and it smells really bad. And, <laughs> you know, you apply it uh, in this, in this foliar application, like I was talking about earlier. But yeah. one thing I want to recognize is, you know, we're talking about seawater and sea kelp or algae, any of these kind of plants that grow in these environments, you know, recognize the uptake, the nutrient uptake of that. And sea salt, just a great example, and this, you, you can find variations of sea salt very, very inexpensively, right? It contains like a, a large amount of elements. And so we concentrate on about, you know, 10, 15, 16 different elements. And no different from the rock dust example, where there's 50 or 60 elements. And yep. you know, gold is an example that would be in something something like that. Um, yeah. You know, there's these very, very finite elements that are, you know, being applied to these areas that are, are derived from seawater and, you know, basically provide a lot of nourishment. And, you know, eventually, you know, as a, as a plant kind of processes this foliar feeding cycle and you give it like a dose. And when I say doses, I'd rather give a plant three doses than one dose or two doses rather than one dose. I would cut down. So if you don't want to spend like $38 on a, a gallon of fish fertilizer and, or you do, and you want to apply it over two times. So you get a whole season out of it. That yeah. might be an option for you. And like I said, there's, there's other options. You know, the one thing with that fish uh, fertilizer is it's fermented, right? So, you know, fermenting some of these plants like dandelions, nettles, um, there's natural ways that you can, and these are Korean philosophies. I've, I've read them, read about them in books, and I've actually applied some of it now on my own property. I'm learning natural remedies that really kind of can, like, emphasize, you know, Japanese knotweed. Oh, my gosh, there's more nutrients in Japanese knotweed than you can shake a stick at. And it's, like, one of the, you know, most bombarding yep. plants in the landscape. People are trying yep. to get it, get rid of in groves. Cut it down, and you can uh, ferment it, and it's a great, you can use that as a, uh, um, as long as you're aerating it and you're adding some of these other elements, you can add it and uh, apply it in landscape. A broad brush spectrum of micronutrients that are going to be helpful. And literally, it costs you nothing but time to cut it down, put it in a toe, aerate it, um, things that we were talking about on a prior podcast. So I just want to yeah. emphasize the fact that you're mentioning sea salt. And the reality of it is, you know, that has the broadest spectrum of micronutrients. And yep. the benefit is so great 
that, you know, the animals are recognizing it. And as a result of it, they're highly attracted to these food plots and apply this example on your property. It's, it should be a eureka moment because you can do it pretty inexpensively, assuming you can, you know, you have the infrastructure, but you could use, you know, you could use a backpack sprayer. And as simple as that with a diaphragm, you can go and you can spray. It may take you some time. But my example, nine years ago when I didn't really have anything and I was just trying to figure this stuff out and doing it in a basic way, seed grows in the ground. And uh, <laughs> we had that example with one of the guests that go to the ocean, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, harvest sea salt. And we explain how to yep. do that. So, you know, if you're in those areas like Maryland or, you know, on the coast, you know, you know, invest in that, right? That's that's an opportunity for you. So I don't know, Colin, yep. I just wanted to add that to the discussion. Yeah, no, for sure. One of the things that, that uh, if you don't mind, I wanted to kind of circle back to, you know, I did mention, obviously, with our farm that, that I've been doing more, you know, you know, organic and, and you know, almost zero herbicide on, on, you know, or zero herbicide on several of these plots. Um, and some of the different, you know, struggles I've had with several different types, you know, of weeds. I've, I do have an invasive weed. It's a common nap weed. If anybody's up in that area, I'm sure they've probably seen it before. It's commonly mistaken as like a purple cone flower. Um, but it's really a nasty weed. It's hard to get rid of, um, you know, you know, doing limited tillage is definitely helped and support it. Um, and I've, I've started to get that more so under control. Um, you know, this year I did have to do a little bit of spot spraying, you know, just with a backpack sprayer. Um, but another thing too, that I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I know we had talked about this previous in, uh, you know, kind of phone conversation is fighting grasses with other grasses. And this is kind of going back to that grain sorghum thing. <laughs> I love this. this is, I, do, I do the same conversation with my clients. I love that you're saying this. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. So, you know, going back to the, the grain sorghum because, in, you know, I guess corn, stuff like that, you know, that's something we want growing. And it's obviously, you know, especially with grain sorghum or corn, that's going to actually produce us a lot more biomass, a lot more late season food. And then, of course, you've got that cover element to it. Uh, you know, in the late season. So that's something where that has, I have really seen that shine this year, uh, even with a drought, because a lot of times you get a lot of these perennial grasses, you know, whatever, reed canary, or you get Johnson grass or Timothy, you know, there's all these different grasses that we have to deal with. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, most deer managers don't want grass on the property other than, you know, maybe some warm season you know, switchgrass, big blue stem, you know, stuff like that for cover and some bedding. But for the most part, you know, we typically don't want those in our, within our bedding areas, within our food plots, um, you know, unless we're talking about your grains, um, you know, which would be, you know, any of your cereal grains or, you know, your actual, you know, grain sorghum or corn. So, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I've seen is, is how well some of these other grasses that I planted um, you know, these grain sorghum and stuff like that have really helped suppress my, you know, perennial cool season grasses, stuff like that, that are just really hard to get rid of. So something for guys to consider. Another thing too, you know, while we're kind of hitting on this, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about kind of backing off on herbicides, a couple of things that, that I think you need to consider is, you know, I think just through social media and these hunting channels and stuff like that, and not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, we get, we see a lot of these manicured food plots that, you know, they look perfect. There's no weeds in them, anything like that. 
Um, but I, I really don't think there's a problem with having some weeds in your food plots as long as it's the right type of plant. Um, you know, for as an example, I've got um, I've got some ragweed, you know, growing in one of my food plots. I mean, if you ever went out and, and observed, you know, during the summer, late summer, early, early summer, um, you know, when deer are really hitting on ragweed, the browse pressure on that plant and the actual protein, you know, content in that plant, you know, that that's could almost be better than some food plot plants that you're actually going to end up spraying that, killing it and planting. So, you know, some of those things, some of those plants, when you go out and observe what the deer are eating, you know, at different times of the year, sometimes I don't really, you know, want to get rid of all those plants. Now, obviously, you know, we're talking about fall, fall annual crops, stuff like that. Ragweed is really not going to be nearest compatible, but, you know, when you're talking about warm season plots and stuff like that, um, definitely something to consider. I think for some guys is if you're wanting to go into more of that organic side, reducing your herbicides, you've got to kind of lower your expectations, I think a little bit, you know, going into that. And I think that'll really give you, you know, a better satisfaction kind of going into it versus, you know, if you're trying to just you know, completely, you know, go cold turkey on herbicides. There's a lot of different, you know, challenges and stuff to that where you're not going to see these perfect food plots, you know, right away. So that's, that's just a couple things that, that I wanted to mention, you know, obviously, you know, going to zero herbicides, like I mentioned, there's a lot of challenges to it and it doesn't, we can't do that in every situation. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different invasive plants. There's, these cool season, more, you know, perennial grasses that are very hard to get rid of. So, you know, there's different things to consider, on, you know, on every property. But, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to do this for, for several different reasons. You know, some of them just being my own personal health. You know, that's what I know we've discussed and I've discussed on my podcast. And, um, you know, overall, our soil health, you know, our actual deer that are consuming it and our wildlife that are consuming this, Um so there, you know, there's several different reasons, but I just wanted to cover that a little bit, you know, because I mentioned it earlier. So. Yeah. And I'll end with one little thing for me. And, and this is, you know, pertinent to the time right now is if you're planting brassica and, and they're at the vegetative stage and they're, you know, they're starting to kind of blossom. A lot of people have planted and remember there's been a climate shift. You've seen changes where, you know, we get these extreme temperature shifts. Like we're back in the eighties next week in my area you know, we've had yep. these great growing conditions, at least in the Northeast over the past yep. few weeks, great rains. I mean, we've just been fortunate. I planted my plants around, I think August, I want to say about August 11th, somewhere in that time frame. So I hit the rains perfect. And, um, you know, that's a late for a lot of people. A lot of people are planting um, in mid-July. And what I've found is I'm getting away from ball plants. I don't like purple top turnips. I don't, I don't plant anything like beets. I don't do anything big. I want you know, kind of a, a limited amount of radishes, but just the rape. I like rape. And yeah. what I like to do is I I put down a good dose of boron this season and I like to put that in granular form. And that's what I said. I'm 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 putting down certain fertilizers now to, you know, help my deficiencies. And I'm gonna tell you right now, fish fertilizer, it's gonna be my addition with a fulvic acid and sulfur. Okay. The combination yeah. of those three um, in the morning dew, you know, with it not impending rain, I'm spraying that um, roughly, you know, maybe maybe 10 gallons an acre, thereabouts with my concentrate. And um, it's going to cost me right around, I want to say right around like 
uh, $8 for, you know, about an acre. Okay. So I can do about 10 gallons, you know, and thereabouts. And the comparableness to your crop against your neighbor is going to be exponentially higher. And so I just wanted to share that with everybody. If you're planting brassica or you have brassica and you want a solution right now, that's what you can do. And um, it's an easy solution, very inexpensive. Like I said, it'll be about $8. You can use that combination. Add a little sea salt in there, maybe a tablespoon or two of sea salt. Um, and, and that's absolutely going to be fine. Um, I would I would do probably a tablespoon for that 10-gallon mixture thereabouts and, you know, see what happens. And uh, if you don't have success, well, you know, I'm sorry, but it works for most people. So I just want to give a kind of a broad brush opportunity for people to think you know, more about simple uh Simple additions. Oh, Colin, I did find that guy's name. That his name's Trevor. Trevor, I will email you. You're in, from Nebraska. I appreciate you listening to my podcast, and I will get you a hat. And uh, Colin, I need to get you a hat too, but I want some of your gear because I, I like your stuff, man. Well, likewise, I got to get you one of mine. <laughs> well, <great. laughs> All right. I'll wear it on my client visits, and uh, I appreciate it. Anything else from you today? I hope we get a chance to have a part two discussion and we'll hit on some more things, but anything else on your end? Um, one of the other things I did want to hit on real quick that I have seen is kind of a, uh, you know, a problem or an issue that I, I commonly find on client properties. It's another one of those kind of real basic things is plants and food plots in general, just not getting enough sunlight. You know, a lot of guys want to plant back in the timber or they want to, you know, make clear this area or whatever, and, you know, I come to the property and they're just not seeing the results. They're not seeing the plant growth, the tonnage. And, you know, plants have to photosynthesize and they've got to have sunlight. And, you know, you know, I guess when we're talking about minimum sunlight requirements, depending on plant, you know, species, um, you know, I'm, you know, for fall annuals, stuff like that, I'm telling guys like a minimum of like six hours of sunlight. You know, I mean, I think that's kind of a good average, you know, Obviously, our, our days are getting shorter here coming into fall, so we're, we're already losing sunlight. Um, so I think that's one of the things if you're talking about or if you're thinking about, you know, creating a new food plot or if you've got a food plot, I know most of you guys have already planned at this point. But, you know, going around, I do a lot of different – obviously, just like you, John, I do a lot of timber work, and um, which is critically important, and we could do a whole other podcast on – you know, timber work and, and fundamentals of that before you even get into food plots on a property. But anyhow, um, one of the things that I think is important is, you know, I do a lot of edge feathering around food plots, kind of creating that feathered edge. We get a lot of sunlight into the plot. Um, we open up around, you know, mass producing trees or oaks. Um, and then, you know, we get a lot of those does that bed up real close to our, our food sources as well. And we get more screening. So, you know, that's just one of the things to think about is how much sunlight is your plot getting? Obviously, the direction and orientation of the food plot. Yeah, I think that does matter for sure. But, you know, when I'm trying to open up a food plot, I'm trying to open up, you know, almost both sides, um, you know, in almost all, all four directions, you know, depending. I mean, obviously, east and west, you know, seems to be, you know, better. But it just depends on how the property is orientated and stuff and, you know, how I'm going to cut it. But. So yeah, another, another just kind of simple, simple thing that I, I see a lot, you know, happen a lot in client properties and, and it can be a, a simple thing to, uh, you know, get a lot more production out of a small area or a small plot. 
So yeah, no, that's great. I think that's good. Food around the edges, manage that vegetation correctly, like I talked about. And yep. back to my early example is, you know, we want plants that we like. Fighting grass with grass, good example in there. You hit on a lot of stuff today, and uh, a lot of knowledge, man. I'm I'm super impressed with you individually, and I think that um, you know you're offering people a great service. I know you're a grinder. You're out there in the field a lot and uh, cutting timber, and timber is really where it's at. And uh, as much as people you know keep commenting, I'm a timber guy. I am a timber guy because I can create more food in that timber than I can in those fields because I've got yep. more to work with. And uh, you know, I just want to emphasize the point that. You know, we should all be timber people, but more importantly, managing your fields, your shrublands, your wetlands. There's a lot you can do. We've kind of contributed a lot on this podcast to think about these different vegetation types and managing them, you know, kind of optimizing them for your particular, you know, demands or goals. And realistically, you know, you're never going to maximize your property, but we're trying to maximize your hunt. So I just wanted to, you know, thank you, Colin, for being on here. Uh, You know, your business, Legendary Habitat, I appreciate you hopefully have another another discussion hopefully have another guest on together with you and me and him and we can talk a little bit more about his products but hopefully we've given some folks some things that you can do to your food plots right before hunting season that's going to take it to the next level so uh thanks a lot and uh appreciate it man yeah well thank you i appreciate a lot for having me come on here and uh the uh, relationship and uh sounds like you've got a great network and uh big following on the podcast. So I really appreciate you having come on here and, and uh, thanks all listeners for uh, tuning in and uh, hopefully you got some good input out of this as you know, if if you've got any questions, obviously myself or or John, you can always reach out to us and uh, we can get you covered. All right, man. All right. We'll talk again soon. Thanks Colin. See you bud. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.